We are studying this afternoon Psalm 139 for the chief musician, a Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this psalm has, I think, four stanzas, each of them consisting of six verses, and each of them focusing on a different attribute of God. In the first stanza, David talks about God's omniscience, and what that omniscience of God means for him. In the second stanza, verses 7 to 12, he talks about God's omnipresence, and again, what that omnipresence of God means for him. In the third stanza, he talks about God's work of making him, but also about God's foreknowledge, and again, about how those things apply to himself personally. And though he does not mention it, nevertheless, in the background of the fourth stanza, I think, stands the holiness of God. 
and the implications of that holiness also for David. But I think there's another um, larger division of this psalm that we also need to look at. The psalm really has, I think, two main parts to it. The first two stanzas show a very different attitude on the part of David than the last two stanzas. What I think we see in the first two stanzas is David fearful and troubled by God's omniscience and God's omnipresence. But in the last two stanzas, we see David accepting this. And in the end, praying for what he had only been able to acknowledge in the first part. So in verse 1, he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. But in the last two verses, he prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And then what David focuses on throughout this psalm then is the fact that God has searched him and he ends in praying that God will search him. So the main idea is certainly in those last two verses, search me, O God. And that's the theme we're going to use for the psalm. Search me, O God. And we're going to consider the four stanzas under the following uh, headings. Fearing the Lord's omniscience, that's verses 1 to 6. Secondly, fleeing from the Lord's omnipresence, verses 7 to 12. Thirdly, resting in the Lord's foreknowledge, verses 13 to 18. And finally, desiring the Lord's testing or searching, verses 19 to 24. So in that first stanza then, we have David uh, beginning with the acknowledgement of a basic fact. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. He's talking, of course, about the omniscience of God. That is the fact that God knows everything about his creation, about every creature in his creation, and about every event in his creation. He knows when a sparrow falls from the sky, Jesus tells us. He knows the number of the hairs on our heads. He knows great events and small events, the most minute events in the whole of his creation. He knows great creatures like the sun and moon and stars, but he also knows little creatures like a grain of sand on the seashore. All of it is known to him. There's nothing in his creation that is too difficult or too big a subject for his mind to grasp, and nothing in the whole of his creation that is too small for him to pay attention to. But David takes this 
idea of God's omniscience, and he immediately applies it directly to himself. You have searched me and known me. And then he goes on in the following verses to indicate that that knowledge of God, that knowledge that God has of him, is comprehensive. And we should at least run through verses 2, 3, and 4 very quickly to see how comprehensive David uh, conceives that knowledge of God to be. He says first, you know my sitting down and rising up. Now these are the kinds of activities that a man performs in the course of a day, not at night, and that he performs in his own house. David says, you know, when I sit down, for example, when I sit down for a meal or when I sit down to have a talk with my wife or my children or whatever it may be, and you know when I rise up, when I stand on my feet again, perhaps to go somewhere or whatever the case may be again. You know these things about me. Furthermore, you understand my thought afar off. In other words, you don't just see what I do, my sitting down and my rising up, but you see into my mind. And you know the thoughts that are in my mind. And in knowing the thoughts that are in my mind, you you don't have to come to me as a friend would have to come to me to hear me talk, to see the expression on my face, to Uh, see the gestures of my hands, to read the posture of my body, and so on. You can do this from far away. You understand my thought from afar off. In the third place, he says, you comprehend my path and my lying down. And I think what he has in mind here is, first of all, by his path, simply the places where he goes in the course of the day. He may leave his house, for example, to go out and work in his fields, or he may go to the village to buy something from one of the shops in the village or to consult with the elders of the city and the gate, or he may go to visit a friend at his own house. Wherever he goes in the course of the day, the Lord knows his path, and the Lord follows him, as it were, along that path and knows exactly where David has been through the whole course of the day. And when he says, you know also my lying down, I think he's taking us back into his own house, but here he's taking us into his private chamber, into the place where he sleeps, where few others are allowed to go. And he says, when I lie down on my bed at night, then you know that I have lain down. You see me there on my bed. So you know where I go in the course of a day, and you know also when I lie down on my bed at night. In the fourth place, he says, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Now that word ways there is uh, a synonym, really, of the word path in the first part of the verse. But notice that the first one, path, is singular, and this one is plural. And I think what we have here is a slight difference of meaning. When David talks about his ways here in the last part of verse 3, he means his whole conduct. Whatever he does as he goes on his path throughout the day, 
So when he talks to a friend, or when he buys something from a shop, or when he harvests some of his uh, grain in the field, or whatever it is, all that conduct, but all the, the conduct also as we see it in a spiritual light, all the conduct as it stands in relation to God's law. You know those ways that are mine. You know if they're evil ways. And you know if they're righteous ways. None of my conduct is hidden from you. And then finally, in verse 4, he says, There's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. That is, you know the words that I speak. In fact, really, you know the words that are on my tongue before I even speak them. You know what I'm going to say before even really I may know what I am going to say. I may have planned to speak, but I may not yet know the the words, the very words that I'm going to use. But you know them. You know the words that are still on my tongue. And you know them all together. So David is basically saying here, you have a, a comprehensive knowledge of my life. You have a comprehensive knowledge of my life as it manifests itself outwardly. You have a comprehensive knowledge of my life internally, my thoughts even. You have a comprehensive knowledge of my words. There's nothing about me that you don't know. So that's the first four verses. David is simply acknowledging basic facts. And this is a truth that we all know very well. But in verses 5 and 6, we see David reacting to this fact. And his reaction to this fact of God's omniscience is negative, decidedly negative. David is very troubled by God's omniscience, God's knowledge of him. And that comes out in the words that David uses here in verses 5 and 6. He says first, you have hedged me behind and before. And that word hedged there is a word that's used, for example, in the besieging of a city. You have besieged me behind and before. You have so put yourself around me that I cannot escape. It's like I'm, I'm trapped in a city which... An enemy is besieging against me. And I don't know how to get out. And I think the same thing, though it's not as clear in the Hebrew, but I think probably the same thing is meant in the second thing he says here. You laid your hand upon me. Now sometimes that idea of laying the hand upon may be to lay your hand upon in blessing or to lay your hand upon in protection, something of of that sort. But I think here what David is thinking about is simply the weight of that hand. That hand is for him an oppressive hand. And you see uh, Job talking this way. If you turn for a moment to Job 13, verse 21. Job 13, verse 21. Job uses somewhat different language, but nevertheless the same kind of idea. He says there, withdraw your hand far from me, and let not the dread of you make me afraid. 
This is what David is feeling, I think. God's hand is on him, is heavy on him, because of this omniscience of God. And he reacts against it, and he really desires the withdrawing of that hand from him. And then again in in verse 6, he says, even more emphatically, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And that word wonderful does not mean what we mean by it today. It does not mean it's great. It's, it's something that is very pleasing to me. It's delightful to me. I love this thing. That's not what he means. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. What he means is that this knowledge is a wonder that is beyond him. It is high. He can't attain to it. And obviously he doesn't mean that this knowledge is something that he can't grasp with his mind. He's just been confessing it in the previous verses. He's just been explaining it in the previous verses. But what he means is that he can't receive this knowledge in such a way as to submit to it. This knowledge so disturbs and troubles him that he says, I I don't want to know this. I don't want to be troubled in this way by God's omniscience. This is too high for me. I can't attain to this. It's too wonderful for me in that sense, just as the Lord's name is too wonderful, or was too wonderful, to be spoken to the parents of Samson in Judges chapter 13. My name, he says to them, is wonderful, And he refuses to speak his name to them. Well, this knowledge is too wonderful for David. He he recoils from it. He, He says, I don't want this knowledge. I don't want to know about God's omniscience. I don't want him to know me in this fashion. I find this very disturbing and and very troubling. And of course, he finds it disturbing and troubling because he knows his own sin. And we'll get to that when we get to the last stanza of the psalm. But but that's the first stanza then. David is recoiling from or being afraid of the omniscience of God. And we see the same kind of recoiling from God in the second stanza, I think. Here he he switches his focus from the omniscience of God to the omnipresence of God. And by the omnipresence of God, we mean that God is always, in his whole being, present everywhere in his creation. So he is present here with his, if we may speak thus anthropomorphically, he is here with his eyes and with his mind and with his hand and with his arm and with his feet He's here in this place, and he's everywhere in in his creation, in the very same way, with the whole of his being present in the whole of his creation. And he's here and present in his whole creation by his spirit, as David indicates in the first line of verse 7. And what that means to David then is, you are present with me. You are here where I am. 
And again, David has a very negative reaction to this presence of God in his life. The the first uh, question that he asks is a question that can be taken as kind of neutral. Where can I go from your spirit? You might think of that question, if you take it by itself, as simply a question of of curiosity, a a question of academic interest to David, or a a rhetorical question which he asks, and to which the answer is simply, well, I can't go anywhere from your spirit. I know that, and that's the end of the matter. But that's not what you see in the second question that David asks there, is is it? Where can I flee from your presence? David wants to run away. He wants to get away from this presence of God. He doesn't want to be there where God is. And so he begins to consider where he can go in God's creation to get away from the presence of God. And you'll notice about these places that he considers that they are all as far away from his present place as possible. Here in this present place, this place where I am, I find God. And I need to get away from God, and I want to get as far away from Him as possible. So let me see if I can get to heaven. If I ascend to heaven, if I leave the earth altogether and and go up into heaven, can I escape from God? You are there. Well, let me consider then hell or Sheol. If I make my bed in Sheol, can I escape from God? Behold, you are there. Well, what if I go to the remotest parts of the earth? If I cross over the seas and find some remote and uninhabited island, perhaps God will not be there in that remote and uninhabited places, as far away on this earth anyway, then, as I can get from God. Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Even if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Now there are a couple of details there in verse 9 and 10, I think that we need to pay attention to. First of all, he talks about taking the wings of the morning. And I think what David has in mind there is simply speed. He wants to get away from God, and he wants to get away from God as fast as he can. And he imagines himself, therefore, catching, as it were, the the rays of the rising sun, and fleeing away from God as he catches those wings of the rising sun, And goes at the speed of light from the presence of God. He wants to get away from God just as fast as he possibly can. Verse 10 may again sound quite positive. Even there your hand shall lead me. And sometimes that word lead does have uh, positive connotations. But there are other places where the word does not have such positive connotations. Let's turn again to the book of Job, chapter 12, verse 23. Job 12, verse 23. 
There, Job says, he makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. And the word guides is the same word that we have here in Psalm 139. He guides nations. What was the Job reference? I'm sorry. Job 12, verse 23. Job 12, verse 23. He enlarges nations and he guides them. Now, Job doesn't have in mind there particularly that God guides the nations in a kindly or fatherly fashion. He's simply talking about God's providence, about the inescapable fact of God's providence. And I think that's what he's talking about here too. That even if he goes into the uttermost parts of the sea, God's providence leads him, leads him there in fact. And so there's no escaping from that guiding providence of God, that that counsel of God from eternity which works itself out in the way of his everyday control of all things that are in the universe, including the life of David. Even there, your hand shall guide me. And when he says, your right hand shall hold me, that word hold means really to grasp or to seize. Your right hand shall seize me so that I can't escape. So he considers these different places and he he says, "I, I don't know where to go to get away from the presence of God. Wherever I go, God is there. And not only is, is he there, but his, his providence is guiding me there, and his hand is holding on to me, taking hold of me, and will not let me go. I can't get away. And so in, in verses 11 and 12, he considers another alternative. Well, maybe since I can't leave my present place and go to some other remote place where God is not, let me hide myself in the darkness. Surely the darkness shall fall on me. And he finds that's no good either. Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines of the day. God sees in the dark. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. It makes no difference to God whether he is in the dark or in the light. God still is present with him and sees him wherever he may be. What we have here then, I think, is in these first two stanzas is David troubled, deeply troubled by God's knowledge and God's presence. And he says, I wish he would leave me alone. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. That's the beginning of a poem by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. And he imagines God in that poem as a hound in pursuit of him and himself fleeing from that presence of God. That's what we see David doing here. Where can I flee from your presence? How can I hide myself from your knowledge of me?
But when you begin to look at the other two stanzas of the psalm, you see a 180-degree turn. It's exactly the opposite of the first half of the psalm. David doesn't explain in so many words how he got there, though it's implied in the two stanzas, as we'll, and we'll see that as we look at them. And he puts in no explanatory material between the two parts of the psalm that help us to make the transition. He just sets before us, first of all, his very negative reaction to the omniscience and omnipresence of God, And then in the second part of the psalm, he sets before us a very positive reaction to the same thing. So we have to look at those verses then, I think, in that light, that these are are very positive. These are verses where David has learned to accept and even to desire God's knowledge of him and God's presence with him. He says in verse 13, you formed my inward parts. Now if you look at the King James Version, the authorized version from 1611, there's a different translation of this first line. It says, you possessed my reins. And I think that's a more accurate translation. You possessed my reins. And remember, reins in the King James Version means kidneys. You possessed my kidneys. To us, a, a very awkward kind of statement. But that's what the Hebrew says. You possessed my kidneys. And what David means then is that God owns him as a master owns a slave. And God not only owns his body, but God owns his inner parts. His kidneys belong to God. And that term kidneys in various passages of the scriptures carries some additional connotations with it too, that the idea of the kidneys is kind of not just the inward parts, the organisms that are inside our bodies, but the life of the soul, really. The emotional and intellectual and and willing life of the soul. And what David is saying here then is not just you own the organs of my body, but you own the life of my soul. You own all that inner life that belongs to me. It's yours. My thoughts, my desires, the acts of my will, they're all yours. And he uses this then, notice, to explain why it is that he cannot escape from God's presence. Because he begins the verse with that word for. For you possessed my kidneys. Why can I not get away from your presence? Why can I not hide from you in the darkness? Because 
You own my inward parts. You own my kidneys. By the way, you see that use of the word kidneys that I've been talking about in Psalm 16, verse 5. No, I'm sorry, verse uh, 7. Psalm 16, verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel, my heart, or better, my kidneys, also instruct me in the night seasons. His kidneys are giving him instruction. And this is what David is talking about when he says, you possess my kidneys. You possess not only my body in all its parts, but you possess my inner life. And that you can take as negative or positive, but the next line I think is very definitely positive. You covered me in my mother's womb. And what David means by that is, first of all, that even when he was in the womb of his mother and forming there in the womb of his mother, God was there also. And God was covering him. And I think that word cover uh, contains the idea of protection. You were there in my mother's womb protecting me from any harm that might come to me. You find that use of the word cover in Psalm 5, Psalm 5, verse 11. And this is again a psalm of David. And he says, But let all those who put their trust in you, let all those rejoice who put their trust in you, let them ever shout for joy because you defend them or because you cover them. The Lord is his covering to protect him from the rays of the sun, from all harm that might come towards him. In verse 14, then, and also in verse 15, he talks about this process of his making. And he's not talking about the creation of man in in the first six days of the creation as a whole. He's not talking about God making man out of the dust of the ground and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life as we find in Genesis 2. He's talking about his, his personal making, his forming and growing in the womb of his mother. That's what he's talking about here. And he says about that making, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, when I consider my creation, my forming in my mother's womb, that's a fearful and wonderful thing. It's a thing that draws my attention to you, O God, and that makes me see how fearful a God you are. Remember that, what that word fear conveys to us, a trembling in the presence of God. And I see how wonderful you are. And again, that word means beyond my comprehension, just as it did before. Beyond my ability to grasp. This is one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest benefit of the advances in science in our uh, times. That science has shown to us how fearful and wonderful God's creation is. And especially how fearful and wonderful is man. 
his creation. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. So he contemplates then that fearful and wonderful fashioning of him in the womb of his mother. And in verse 15, he carries this a little further. He talks about being made in secret. And I think again, when he talks about secret, he's talking about the womb of his mother. He was fashioned there in the womb of his mother, in that secret place which no man has access to. And he was skillfully wrought or skillfully woven in the lowest parts of the earth. And he's considering the earth here as the lowest part of God's creation. Above the earth are the heavens and above the heavens is God himself. He's enthroned on the heavens and the earth is his footstool. The earth is the lowest part of his creation. And David's was, David was there in that creation, and his mother's womb was there in that creation. And what he says about this then is he was in his mother's womb in this lowest part of God's creation. My frame was not hidden from you. You knew me there in that secret place. And the word frame, some translate as bones, or we might even perhaps translate as skeleton. My skeleton was not hidden from you when I was made in secret in the lowest parts of the earth. You saw then into my internal being, even when I was in my mother's womb. And he goes on in verse 16 then, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. Your eyes saw my substance. If you look up that word substance, which is only used one or two times in the Old Testament, in the theological word book of the Old Testament, they say it means fetus or embryo. Your eyes saw my fetus, yet unformed. Your eyes saw that, what some people today consider a little blob of matter, your eyes saw that even before it existed even before it was formed there. And, he says, in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. That word they, in that line there, refers to the days. The pronoun precedes its antecedent. In your book, they, that is the days, all were written that you fashioned for me. When as yet there were none of them. That is, before my days began, before even one of my days began, they were written in your book. And you had fashioned each one of them for me. So you have known me Basically, David says, from eternity. He's talking about God's foreknowledge. And that idea of the foreknowledge of God is a very important concept, and we have to get it straight. When we talk about the foreknowledge of God, we don't mean that God is able to see down the path of the future and he's 
able to discern what's going to happen and what creatures are going to exist at any given moment in the history of his creation. That he kind of knows the history of the world before it happens. He's able to foresee the history of the world. God's knowledge doesn't come from his observation of what is. God's knowledge precedes what is and is determinative of what is. And so when David says here, my days were written in your book, you were fashioning them for me in your book by your foreknowledge so that now as I walk here in the midst of the world, I am only working out what you foreknew from all eternity, what you and your determinate counsel and foreknowledge had fashioned for me. So he's looking back then to the foreknowledge of God and he's he's saying, this is why you know me. You know my thoughts. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You know my path and my lying down. Because you foreknew me in your determinate counsel. And you knew everything about me. You knew me even when I was a fetus in my mother's womb, before I was a fetus in my mother's womb, but as a fetus in my mother's womb. Now these verses have been rightly used by Christians to defend their pro-life stance. Abortion is, of course, an attack on that fearful and wonderful creation of God. It's a denial that God makes it, and that it's a fearful and wonderful work of his hands. It treats that wonderful work of God as if it's a a thing of no account. To be cast, to be cut up and thrown into a fire, if it suits our convenience to do so. But that's not what David is getting at here. It's implied here. But what David is getting at, you see, is God's absolutely comprehensive knowledge of himself. It was all there. I was all there. And all my days and all my ways were all there in your book before ever they existed. And that's why I can't escape from your presence, and that's why I can't escape from your knowledge of me. But, as we've been saying, David's attitude here is acceptance rather than rejection. We've already indicated a couple of things that show us that, but let's look at a couple of other things. First of all, he says in verse 14, I will praise you, or I will give thanks to you. That's the word. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. This is the knowledge that he was recoiling from in verses 1 to 6, and now he says, my soul knows it very well. But especially we see that change in David's attitude in verses 17 and 18. 
He talks about the thoughts of God there. The innumerable thoughts of God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. And he says of those thoughts of God, which are really thoughts, he's thinking of the thoughts that God has about him, not just thinking about thoughts in general. He's been talking about God's ways with him, and now he's talking about God's thoughts about him. All those thoughts about his fetus and his his bones and about his days and everything like that, that's what he's talking about. Those thoughts of God about him, they're innumerable. I can't count them, but they're precious to me. More precious than any of my possessions here on earth. I delight in them. He's accepted God's presence and God's knowledge of himself. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. He loves it. He desires it. He values it. And then he concludes this stanza with the words, When I awake, I am still with you. I don't think, and there might be some disagreement on this, but I don't think what David is talking about there is that he was asleep and he woke up and he found God with him. But I think what he's saying there is that he's been meditating on the Word of God. He's been meditating on this omniscience and omnipresence and foreknowledge of God. And he's been oblivious then to what's going on around him. It's, it's as if he's been asleep with regard to everything that's going around him. But his meditation comes to an end and he wakes up. And he says, here you are. I'm still with you. You haven't abandoned me. You haven't forsaken me. I've been trying to push you out of my thoughts. I've been trying to run away from you. But when I wake up from my meditation, there you are again, still with me. Well, it's an interesting turn how he goes throughout and he says, you are with me, I try to hide, you are with me, the darkness, you are with me. And then he says, I am with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the third stanza then, this, this acceptance of what God, of God's omniscience. Let's... Uh, try to be brief about the fourth stanza here. Um, the, the first four verses of that stanza are, are very um, troubling to us, very bothersome to us, I think. And they're bothersome to us because, first of all, they talk about hating people. And we all, as Christians, are very much aware of Christ's command to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who use us spitefully, to do good to those who harm us, and so on. And we say, well, how are we going to make that consistent, this consistent with Christ's command? So that's one reason why we're troubled by these verses. Two things about that. First of all, and this is characteristic of these imprecatory psalms, that the, David does not here say, I'm going to take vengeance myself. 
He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. And this is what you find throughout, almost without exception. The psalmist refuses to take vengeance himself. He commits vengeance to God. But the second thing that we have to see here is that David is talking not about his own enemies, but about God's enemies. He calls them the wicked, the bloodthirsty. In verse 19, he calls them, he says of them, they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies, your enemies, take your name in vain. They hate the Lord, verse 21. They rise up against the Lord. These are the Lord's enemies. They are the implacable enemies of God. They are those who persist openly in their hatred of God and will have nothing to do with God and always reject God. And David says, of those enemies of God, I hate them. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Oh, that you would destroy them. Depart from me. What we have here, I think, then is is that David recognizing the fact, a fact that we have to recognize, and that is that there is a first and great commandment, love the Lord. And there is a second commandment, not as great as the first, which is love your neighbor, including your enemy. And sometimes those two aren't compatible. Sometimes we cannot love God and love his enemies at the same time. And in those cases, we hate them. So that's the first problem. And what I've suggested here is perhaps not a full solution to the problem. But the second problem we have with this is, why is it here in the psalm? Wouldn't it be lovely if those four verses simply vanished from the psalm and we went right from verse 18 to verse 23? When I awake, I am still with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. It works very well, doesn't it? So, why is that here? And I think the answer to the question is that David is thinking about the holiness of God. He's thinking about the fact that God hates the wicked. That God is angry with the wicked every day. That's in Psalms 5 and 7. He hates the bloody and deceitful man. He abhors those who speak lies, Psalm 5 says. And he abhors them because of their wickedness. His hatred of them is the recoiling of his holy being from all that is unholy, from all that is corrupt. David is recognizing that holiness of God And by making this prayer here in these four verses is identifying himself with God and not with the wicked. He says, I love your holiness. I hate their wickedness just as you hate that wickedness. They are your enemies. 
And because they are your enemies, they are also my enemies. He is identifying himself with the holiness of God. And of course he doesn't do this by his own merit or by his own goodness. He identifies himself with the holiness of God by the grace of God and by the work of God in him, the sanctifying and purifying work of God. There's no sin here in what David is saying. He would never dare to go on if this were sinful hatred. He would never dare to go on and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. No sin. He's identifying himself with the holiness of God. And this explains then why he can make the prayer of verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. What he recoiled from in the first half of the psalm, he here prays for, desires, in the last two verses of the psalm. You have searched me and known me, and I didn't like it. But now, search me, O God. And don't just search my life externally, my behavior and conduct and words, but search my heart. And know all the anxious thoughts that are there in my heart. All those doubts and fears that characterize me from day to day. And when you search my heart, look especially for wickedness. See that in verse 24? See if there is any wicked way in me. See my sin. And of course, what he has in mind here is not just that God should know his sin, but that God should expose that sin to the light so that David himself can see it. The word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And David says, wield that sword against me. Pierce my heart with that sword. Discern my thoughts and intents. Bring all the wickedness and corruption, all the evil desires, all the wicked thoughts, all the errors out into the light where I can see them. Know me, O God. Know me in and out. Know me to the very depths of my being. So that I may know myself. And then lead me in the way everlasting. The way of holiness. The way of life. And the way that ends in everlasting life. So David sets before us two things from his own life, two different ways of considering God's knowledge of us. And we are confronted with the question, which will you choose? Will you try to push God out of your thoughts as if pushing him out of your thoughts means that you are no longer in his thoughts? Is that what you want to try to do? That's folly. He knows you, whether you will acknowledge him or not. There is no running away from him. There is no hiding from his eyes. He knows your thoughts. He knows your desires. He knows your inmost being. 
He knows every sin, every bit of corruption, every bit of filthiness in your mind and in your heart. There's nothing hidden from him, and you can't escape it. You can't escape it. The other alternative is to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my anxieties, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. May God grant us that grace. May God bless his word for us.